Well, let me encourage you, uh, if you will, to turn back to our reading, uh, page uh, 42 of uh, Genesis, uh, sorry, page 47, Genesis 42. And uh, you might also like to dig out um, this uh, sheet that I tucked inside the uh, service orders, um, uh, and that will give you an idea of where we're going uh, in the next few minutes. Genesis 42 to 44. And we continue on in this series looking at uh, the events of Joseph's life. Uh, Political commentators are saying that the recent uh, local and European elections have sent a clear message to the government uh, and indeed to all main political parties. The general public want change. Uh, The scandal that has dominated the news over MPs' expenses has left people appalled by the uh, the selfish, deceitful and self-serving attitude of those who should be serving the country. Now, I guess most people here have been saddened by the revelations that have been brought to light by the Daily Telegraph. But look, as I say those words, there is no self-righteousness from the preacher this evening. As I've reflected on the events of these last weeks, I've got to hold my hands up and say, I'm guilty too. I know what is in my heart. I know that I too am capable of the most self-centred actions and attitudes. I know the thoughts that go through my head. I know how thoroughly sinful I am. Uh, Not just in politics do we see this. Uh, Look at the world of entertainment. Uh, The Britons got talent judges and audience were stunned by the remarkable voice of a very apparently ordinary person. Susan Boyle became the darling of the British public and the British media for a while. And then the media began to knock her and find fault with her. And as they did, under pressure, she said things that were unbecoming and acted in ways that were ungainly we seem uh, to be able to raise people up only to knock them down again. Politics, entertainment, um, commerce, the near near collapse of the banking system and the resulting recession has reminded us of the greed and self-seeking that is so prevalent in business today. Politics, entertainment, business, sports. You know, I won't go on. There are so many examples from the sporting arena. In every area of life, we discover the depths of sin. And as we look at how other people sin, if we're honest and look into our own hearts, we see the depravity of our own hearts, our own sinfulness, the hypocrisy and self-seeking that so ruins lives. And here we are, this rather strange mix. People who call for change, who want high standards, yet who fail to live them ourselves. Now it seems to me, if the world was ever ripe for seeing a people who were different, it is now. The world is crying out for change, for honesty, for integrity, for selfless, sacrificial sincerity. And of course that is exactly what the church should be. We should be a family who are positively different. And that is what Genesis chapters 42 to 44 are all about. As we look at these chapters this evening, we discover how God is redeeming for himself a people that are eager to do what is good. And we will see through these chapters how God changes and transforms people. People that on the surface look absolutely hopeless. And he can change them to be almost unrecognisable. Turn with me as we begin to chapter 45 and verse 7 because uh, it's a strange place to begin as if we haven't got enough chapters to deal with. We're even going into another chapter. But actually it tells us what's going on in the story up to this point. 
You see, chapter 45 and verse 7, Joseph says to his brothers, uh, God sent me to preserve a remnant and save your lives. Do you see it there? God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. That tells us what God was doing through this whole event. And there are two sort of quick things that I want to highlight before we get into the main thrust of uh, these chapters. The first is there's the saving of a remnant, the people of God. You see, without God's actions here, there would be no remnant and that would have been a disaster. Now, you can easily say about all things being a disaster, but this really would have been a disaster and not just for the children of Israel. It would have been a disaster for the entire human race. For this was the family from whom Jesus came. If they had not been saved, do you see what a disaster we would have had on our hands? Just consider what would have happened had Jesus not saved this family. Had God not acted the way he did to date Joseph into Egypt and given Pharaoh his dreams and enabled Joseph to interpret those dreams, Had God not developed uh, Joseph into the wise and trusted man that he become, and of course all that happened through huge suffering, had God not acted the way he had, there would be no remnant. Jacob and sons would have died of starvation in Canaan. And to to quote another preacher, Charlie Screen, there would have been no Jacob, no brothers, no sons of Israel, no seed, no line, no nation, no promises of God, no witnesses to the nations, no priests, no sacrifices for sin, no kings, no temple, no Messiah, no resurrection, no forgiveness, no gospel, no one at all in God's new creation. Just a world of sin getting worse and worse, a world under judgment and going to hell. This family matters very much says Charlie Screen. That's very good, isn't it? Without this act of God, we would have no gospel at all. But chapter 45, verse 7, God sent Joseph ahead of the brothers to preserve a remnant on earth. For the saving of a remnant was the saving of the nations, just as God had promised to Abraham back in chapter 12. And that is something, of course, through this whole story, the bigger picture is that we should gain great confidence from. Everything in this story is saying God will bring about his promises. So three times in chapters 42 to 44, we read that Joseph's brothers bowed down to him. I put the references on the sheet there for you. Each time that we read that Joseph's brothers bowed down to Joseph, it is to remind us that God keeps his promises. Because back in chapter 37, Joseph had had a dream sent by God that his family would bow down to him. And it seems so unlikely at the time, but it happened. And that is an encouragement for us that God keeps the bigger promises that he made, the promises that he made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that God would gather together a numerically great people from every tribe and nation and language and to bring them into the promised land, the new creation, and to bless them by giving them a restored and perfect relationship with God through Jesus Christ. This event, you see, the way this pans out, the, the, the saving of a remnant, tells us that nothing will thwart God in those purposes. And so if you're a Christian today, You should be rejoicing in God's saving action through Joseph as you read this story. If you're Christian today, you should be marvelling at God's sovereign hand upon history, how he had everything covered. 
And if you're Christian today, you should feel secure that God works to fulfil his promises. And if you're thinking, I wonder if he'll really do it, I wonder if I really will go to be with the Lord Jesus in eternity, you can say, yes, he will, because he did it back then. Through the most unlikely circumstances, he'll do it again today. But there's something else here as well, and this is the main thrust of chapters 42 to 44. This was about preserving a remnant, chapter 45, verse 7, but it's also about something else, you see. It is about, 45, verse 7, the saving of lives. Now, I don't think that's just about saving people from starvation, but the Lord saving a people to be a family of believers who are eager to do what is good, saving people in the whole sense, not just saving them for heaven, yes, saving a remnant, but also saving us almost from ourselves. Let me just uh, give you one cross-reference before we look into Genesis 42. Come with me to Titus chapter 2, and this will form the backdrop to all that I'm going to say uh, tonight. Uh, It's page 1199, if you have a church Bible. Titus chapter 2. I love these verses. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, 11 to 14. Look how Paul writes. He says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. That's what we're waiting for. We are waiting, if we're Christians, for Jesus to return, that we may be with him for all eternity. But meanwhile, and that is the crucial thing, but meanwhile, twice we are told in this passage what God is doing now. Verse 12, the grace of God teaches us to live upright and godly lives in this present age. And then look to verse 14. We have been redeemed to be a pure people who are, do you see it there, eager to do what is good. Verse 12, to live upright and godly lives in this present age, we've been redeemed to do, to be eager to do what is good, verse 14. You see, the gospel isn't just a ticket to heaven. Oh, it is, and that's fantastic. It is great to think of being with Jesus for all eternity. And while we should be longing for that moment, while we wait, God is doing something very significant now. He is gathering together a family a family that will be changed by his grace, a family that is transformed into a people that are spectacularly different, a people eager to do what is good, people that are pure. Now you see, that is exactly what the world is crying out to see. The world is fed up with all that they're seeing around, with politicians, and they don't like that. They want to see people who are eager to do what is good. That is what we're meant to be. Wouldn't it be spectacular if that's what we were? And Genesis chapter 42 to 44 are all are about that, about how God changes a family, a rotten family, into being a people that are eager to do what is good. Well, let's uh, turn back then to uh, Genesis chapter 42. And uh, the first point, we'll see a family in disarray as we look at this chapter a family in disarray, and yet these are the people God saves. 
Oh, I, I love this. So you can't really see how, you can't really miss how this family is, is, is a thoroughly dysfunctional family. We saw something of it back in chapter 37. Here we see it again, only worse. Uh, just look at them in chapter 42. The world is in the grip of a global famine. The family is starving. And what are they doing about it, verse 1? Absolutely nothing. When Jacob, Jacob's the father, when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? I love that. Can you hear Jacob's frustration? And like all dads who get frustrated with his boys who are just sitting around watching the telly, he shouts at them, don't just sit there, do something. Get off your backsides and get down to Egypt. Well, that's my version. We'll read verse 2. Uh, he said, uh, I've, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. And so, verse 3, the brothers went down to Egypt and by the time we get to verse 29, they returned to the family home with some grain. But throughout this episode, there are plenty of comments that tell us the sorry state of this family. Look at verse 4. Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. Now, at first glance, that seems like the loving actions of a caring father until you stop to think about it. Jacob was worried that something might happen to his youngest son, Benjamin. I'm not going to send Benjamin down to Egypt and say something happens to him. But he's not worried about the other sons. They can go. Quite willing to send them off to Egypt. Um, don't get the wrong end of the stick here. It's not as if Benjamin is a little boy, defenceless little lad. Genesis 42 is at least 20 years after Genesis chapter 37. So Benjamin's not a little boy. He's more than 20 years old. But Jacob wants to protect him above all the others because Benjamin is his favourite. Oh, we saw it back in chapter 37. Uh, then Jacob's favourite was Joseph. Now Joseph is off the scene. He's turned his, his, his affections to Benjamin. And Jacob's favouritism has ruined this family. It continues to ruin this family. Now, if you think I'm reading too much into verse 4, look down to verse 38 over the page, if you will. Chapter 42, verse 38. And be amazed at what Daddy Jacob says to his ten sons. Verse 38, Jacob said, talking of Benjamin, my son will not go down there to Egypt with you. My brother, his brother is dead and he is the only one left. What an extraordinary thing to say. As far as Jacob is concerned, there's only one son left in his family. Benjamin's the only one that counts. Now that is a terrible thing to think as a father. But Jacob says it to the other sons. This appalling favouritism has created a terrible family dynamic. And just see how it pans out. In chapter 42, the brothers travel down to Egypt to fetch grain. When they arrive, they come face to face with Joseph, the brother that they sold into slavery more than 20 years ago. Joseph instantly recognises these ten brothers. Of course he does. But they didn't recognise him. And you might think that's odd, but of course it's totally understandable. When they last saw Joseph, he was a Hebrew teenager. Now in Egypt, he's wearing Egyptian attire. He spoke Egyptian. He's the second most powerful man in the most powerful nation in the world. He had all the trappings of wealth and sophistication. No wonder they didn't recognise him. They didn't expect to see him again. But Joseph recognises them and he accuses them of being spies. 
They denied it, assuring Joseph they were a normal family and they told him about their father and, and their younger brother. And so Joseph demanded that they bring their youngest brother to Egypt. And have a look at chapter 42 and verse 19. See what he says. Chapter 42, verse 19. He says, If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back to your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that they may not die. This they proceeded to die to do. So they returned home without Simeon. Simeon's the one who's left in prison in Egypt. But they also returned home with something that they hadn't bargained for. Look at verse 25. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack and to give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey and he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in the sack. And when they finally arrived home, they discovered that all of them had had the silver put back in their sacks. Look at verse 35. As they were emptying their sacks, this is when they're back home now, there in each man's sack was his pouch of silver. And so here's the situation. The brothers have finally returned home to their father Jacob. They have grain. They have all the silver that they took with them, but they don't have Simeon. And Jacob is very suspicious. Verse 36. Their father Jacob said to them, You've deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more and now you want to take Benjamin. You see, there is no trust in this family. Jacob blames the brothers for the disappearance of Joseph and Simeon. And it seems at this point that maybe Jacob is beginning to join the dots. You can imagine him working it out. I remember 20 years ago, once before when you brothers went on a trip together, that time Joseph didn't come back. This time it's Simeon. And when Joseph went missing back then, you came back with a stash of cash in your pockets because remember, they sold Joseph to the Midianite slave traders. Yeah, last time one of my sons went missing, you had extra cash. The same has happened again. So Jacob doesn't trust them as far as he can throw them. He's beginning to wonder. He's beginning to put two and two together. Simeon's not here. You've got grain. You've still got all your money. Don't tell me that you sold Simeon for grain. And don't tell me that that's what you did with Joseph all those years ago. Do you see the state of the family? Jacob's favouritism has left the brothers feeling unloved. That resulted in them acting murderously and and harbouring deep secrets for years. The brothers are up to their necks in lies and deception and it's all catching up with them now. I mean, where do you go from here? What do they say to their dad? Well, no, dad, you don't understand. Last time we did sell your son, but not this time. I mean, what do you do? They just don't function as a family. They're a bunch of lying, suspicious individuals. And if that isn't bad enough, just look at verse 37. This really sums up the state of this family. Verse 37. Uh, Reuben is trying to get their dad to allow them to take Benjamin back to Egypt so they can get Simeon out of prison. And Reuben says to his dad, verse 37, you may put both my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Now tell me, what kind of father would put the lives of his own sons on the line? 
If Reuben is so sure he'll bring Benjamin back alive, why doesn't he say, if he doesn't come back, you can kill me? No, you can kill my sons. Well, that's very brave. And as Charlie Screen says on this verse, only in this family would you think that butchering two of the grandkids would make Gramps feel better. (laughs) This family is a disaster. But that's no surprise to us because uh, we know the rest of the story. We know they were just moments away from murdering Joseph their own brother. We know they sold him into slavery even while he pleaded with them to be merciful. So as we look at this family, here's the challenge. This, remember, chapter 45, verse 7, this is the Lord's remnant. This is the family of God. Here's the challenge. How can the Lord ever make this bunch of selfish, lying, deceiving, no-gooders into a family of people eager to do what is good? That's a mighty task. But that is the work that the Lord is about. And that is the work that he's about today. Gathering together a bunch of people who naturally can't get on together. That's the church. And we're a bunch of people with all these sorry features. A bunch of people who you've seen just look out for themselves. Favouritism reigning. Favouritism reigns, doesn't it? So we'll happily spend time time with people we like, but we won't go out of our way for others. And like Jacob and Reuben, we're ready to sacrifice the lives of others. Oh, you can sacrifice my sons if you like. Uh, Well, no, we'd never do that, would we? What about at work? If it's a choice between me and someone else, we'll fight for our lives and our jobs, won't we? And we'll lie to save our reputations. I mean, all of this is going on in our hearts, isn't it? We need to be changed, don't we? Well, well, look, be encouraged. If you're kind of feeling the weight of this, then be encouraged because this is the very people God chooses to be his own. What did Jesus say? He said, I've come to call the righteous. No. He said, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What is the qualification for coming to Jesus? It's, are you a sinner? What is the question you should ask when you come to Jesus? It's not, am I good enough, but am I bad enough? Be encouraged. This is the raw material that God works with. If you're in this category, then you're ideal material for God's handiwork. But still, this is going to take a mighty work of God to transform people like this into a people who are pure, a people who are eager to do what is good, But that is exactly what happens in chapters 42 to 44. And so secondly, see a family transformed in the way God sanctifies people. See, by the end of this episode, by the end of chapter 44, we will witness a quite remarkable transformation in this family. And that is what these chapters are all about. See, as you read through these chapters, it seems at first that Joseph is acting in a quite vengeful and vindictive way. Look again at his first response when the brothers first arrived. Chapter 42 and verse 7. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognised them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke heartily to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognised his brothers, they didn't recognise him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You're spies. You've come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my lord, they answered. No, your servants have come to buy food. 
We're all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said, you've come to see where our land is unprotected. It seems as if Joseph is just trying to make them squirm. Sort of thing you and I might do, bearing in mind what they did to him, but there's more to it than it first seems. Look at verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you'll live, for I fear God. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back to your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified, and so on. When they finally went back to Egypt a second time, and we're about, to, we're about to return home to their father, look at Joseph's actions at the beginning of chapter, chapter 44. Chapter 44 and verse 1. Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry, put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack, then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the silver for his grain. And he did, as Joseph said. And so they go off, and, uh, and, and the steward catches up with them and he says, uh, you've got the silver cup of my, of my master. And they, of course, say, no, we haven't. They denied it. And then we read in 44 verse 12, then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. So, of course, Joseph demanded that Benjamin be kept alive in Egypt as a slave. Now, look, the point is this. These actions seem harsh and vindictive and, and deceptive. But on the other hand, it's such a confusing chapter because, on the other hand, Joseph is so full of love and compassion. In chapter 42 and verse 24, he wept when he saw the brothers. The same thing happens in chapter 43 when he saw Benjamin for the first time. That's in verses 31 and 30. In chapter 42, do you remember, he returns their silver. He's very generous. In chapter 43, he gives them a slap-up meal. He's very kind to them. It's very odd, isn't it? There's these moments of kindness and generosity from Joseph. And yet, on the other hand, he seems to be quite tough with them. What is going on in these chapters? Well, in these last weeks, throughout the narrative, we've seen that we've used this word paradigms for the gospel. That is, patterns of how God works in his world and in his people. And this is no different. In Joseph's actions here, we see how God works to bring about change and how he works to transform people. Uh, To persuade you of that, notice these three things that I put on the outline. First, note Joseph does not act to get revenge. He doesn't want justice. If he'd wanted justice, he'd have thrown the brothers in the slammer for 14 years. That's justice. Joseph suffered slavery and imprisonment for more than a decade. They should too. An eye for an eye. That's justice. But Joseph doesn't do that. Second, note how this this episode began to change his family. So in chapter 42, verse 21, they begin to confess their sinful actions of the past. In chapter 43, when they return to Egypt to get more grain, they are honest about the silver that they'd found in their sacks last time. So in 43, they say, look, last time we went home, uh, 43 verse 19, we found this silver, we brought it back. That's remarkable. Remember, they were a bunch of lying good-for-nothings. You see, the way Joseph was dealing with them was beginning to bring about change. And third, notes how, how God acts to change people. Let me uh, quote Derek Kidner. At first sight, the rough handling of Joseph on his brothers has the look of vengefulness, but nothing could be further from the truth. 
Behind the harsh pose was deep, almost uncontrollable affection seen in Joseph's continually running out of the room to weep. And after the ordeal is over, there's nothing but overwhelming kindness and tenderness. Joseph's enigmatic treatment of them was a kinder and more searching test. Just how well judged was his policy can be seen in the growth of the new attitudes of the brothers as the alternating sun and frost broke them open to God. And it's that last phrase that opens up the whole chapter to me. The alternating sun and frost broke them open to God. Uh, You know, really hot conditions followed by really cold conditions break things. It can crack stones and rock. Very hot followed by very cold sun and frost. It breaks hard things. And these brothers are as hard as nails. They have almost impenetrable hearts. And so there's this mixture of the the kindness and, and, and and the frost to break them open to God. It is, of course, what happened to Joseph. The previous 20 years of his life had been a series of ups and downs, highs and lows, sun and frost. And those experiences had made him into the man he was. He had been utterly transformed. And now, do you see, Joseph is doing exactly the same with his brothers. He's humbling them and loving them. He's convicting them and encouraging them, sun and frost, in order to break them. You see, they'd never experienced anything like this in their family. Jacob was a terrible father. With Joseph and Benjamin, it was all son, giving all love and affection and no boundaries. With the other ten brothers, it was all frost, boundaries and rules and no affection and love. But if we are to change, we need both. Truth without love doesn't change people and neither does love without truth. But truth and love together in perfect proportion transforms lives. This is how God changes us. Joseph acts the way he does towards his brothers to break them, to change them, because God wants a remnant. He wants to save a people for himself who are, do you remember it, eager to do what is good. He wants a family who lives self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. Now, in case you think I'm overstating it, I put a reference that you can look at later, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 11. And if you look at that later, you'll see this is exactly how God works with us. He disciplines us. Not because he is harsh, but because he is a father who loves us. And all fathers in the congregation know, and all children who've had good fathers know, that fathers do both. They love their children, but they also discipline them. That is what God does with us and that is what Joseph is doing with his brothers. And we know it works when we come to the end of chapter 44. See, in chapter 45, verse 1, Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers because this is the moment when the family has finally been changed. So look at chapter 44. We're almost at the end. You've been very patient and we're almost done. Chapter 44 and verse 17. Remember, Benjamin has been found out. Uh, And uh, Joseph says, Benjamin's got to stay. He can't go back to to, to the family home and to his father. And so at that moment, the brothers are in exactly the same situation they were in with Joseph 20 years earlier, back in chapter 37. The brothers can, if they want, at this moment, walk away 
and leave their little brother Benjamin in slavery. They can go free and they can leave him squirming. Exactly what they did with Joseph. Joseph. But here's where we see transformation. In verse 18, Judah steps forward and he actually offers himself. It's a remarkable transformation. Because you see, it was Judah who was the one who suggested that Joseph be sold to the Midianites back in chapter 37. And if you look at chapter 38, you'll see how selfish and ungodly Judah really was. He was a complete scoundrel. So what a moment this is. Judah is prepared to sacrifice himself for his brother. Listen to his speech. It's very moving. Verse 18, Judah went up to Joseph and said, Please, my Lord, let your servant speak a word to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, Do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, We have an aged father, and and there is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead, and he's the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me so I can see for myself. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you'll not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what my Lord had said. Then our father said, go back and buy a little more food. But we said, we cannot go down. Only if our youngest brother is with us will we go. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me and I said, he has surely been torn to pieces and I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too and harm comes to him, you'll bring my grey hair down to the grave in misery. So now, if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the grey head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Do you see what a change has occurred? Judah was never bothered about his father before. He hated his father. He wasn't bothered that his father's heart would be broken when he sold Joseph into slavery. What a transformation. And you see how it goes on in verse 32. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I don't bring him back to you, I'll bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then... Please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. Here is Judah, eager to do what is good. Before he left Egypt for Egypt, he was ready to give up his own sons in exchange for Benjamin's life. Now he offers his own life in exchange for Benjamin's freedom. Judah has been utterly transformed and that is what this whole episode is about and so now Joseph can reveal himself at this very moment Joseph can say let me tell you what's been happening here and that is how God works in us sun and frost never giving us what we deserve never revenge never justice but through truth and love through kindness and discipline he changes us to create a family that is pure and eager to do what is good. A family that will offer themselves in sacrificial living for their brothers. You see, God's sun shines on us 
as he gives us wonderful things, things we don't deserve, food and clothing and family and friends and holidays and health and work and wealth and houses and hopes and all the good things that we enjoy every day. His sun shines on us, but he also sends the frost. The hardships and pressures of living in a fallen world, the tragedies of bereavement and redundancy and health concerns and relationships that break up. And he will use the brokenness of the world that we live in in just the right way to make something good. I was talking to somebody just recently about their own job situation and how it's changing. And it is so painful for them. But this man, I was really touched as he told me, he was explaining to me how this has been a time for him to re-evaluate so much. He's looking again at his life, at his home life, how he spends time with his family, where his life is going, his relationships, how he'll use the years ahead. It's frosty for him, but the Lord is using it. It's painful. But you see, sun and frost together breaks people for good. That's how the Lord changes us. He does it for our good and for the good of the world we live in. The world that is crying out to see people who are different. A world that is crying out for change, for honesty, for integrity, for selfless, sacrificial sincerity. And if we will allow the Lord as he sends his sun and his frost into our lives to change us, then the world will see a people that are redeemed for him a people that are eager to do what is good and surely they'll want to be part of that. Let's pray together.